0: Thank you, guys. Thank you. Love you, Ricky. Love y'all. Appreciate that. Uh, I know it's a tense and controversial time, and some of you are tense that I'm up here preaching. I understand that. But I promise you I'm going to limit my discussion to religion, politics, idolatry, white supremacy, and racial injustice. Is that all right? Amen. Come on. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm happy to be here. And I actually want to say that uh, a friend of mine sent me a text message about an hour ago. And she said, Hey, I sent you an email. If you get a chance to read it before your sermon, uh, I think it'd be good. And so I did. And it was, uh, it was a really good word. And one of the things she, she included in her word was a passage out of Colossians about um, how, to, how to treat each other as the body of Christ. How to respond to each other? How to show love? How to show deference? And so, what I have to say tonight about these topics and issues, um, I'm directing at the body of Christ. And I want to. I want to also distinguish that I feel like. New Life City is a unique congregation unlike any, any church I've ever been a part of. And I feel like the, the values that y'all possess, the things that you've uh, learned from, from Pastor Allen and the other leadership here, uh, I don't think you're typical. And so some of the stuff I say, I'll say about the American church which has its own identity and has its own uh, tendencies and it has its own perception in the public eye. And I am talking about that. It's not my intent to offend you, but I might anyway. Um, But please, please know, if you know my heart, you know it's coming from a place of love. And if I do hurt, if I do say things that hurt you or offend you, please email me, steve at (laughs) newlifecity.org. Not Stephen. Not Stephen at (laughs) NewLifeCity.org. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your goodness in our lives, for your presence in our lives, for the communion that you've called us into, Lord and that we don't have to stumble through life trying to figure out what, what, what's next, trying to figure out how to respond or how to react or how to be proactive because you've put your spirit within us. Not only do we each, as children of God, possess your spirit, but we collectively, as the body of Christ, are being built into a living temple to carry your presence, Lord, and to make a mark on this earth, not just make a mark, Lord, but to change the order of creation, to change the order of things, to establish that new creation has come, that the kingdom of God has come, and it is coming, and that we can labor to the end of seeing your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. As a foundation of my sermon, let me commend Pastor Allen for railing for a long time against the prevailing Western view that says Christianity is all about going to heaven when you die. How many of you have heard that prevailing mindset? And how many of you heard Pastor Allen saying that's not what Christianity is? Okay. (laughs) That's a platonic distortion of the gospel of Jesus. If you have that view of Christianity, then your sole responsibility is to pray a prayer of salvation so you don't go to hell, and then keep your nose clean and your head down until that trumpet sounds. And on occasion, tell other people about it, about Jesus. And go to potlucks. (laughs) Pastor Allen says the Christian life is receiving and giving. He says Christ gave his life for you so he could give his life to you so he could live his life through you. We believe that the kingdom of God has come and is coming and that the body of Christ has an active role to play in the establishment of that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That means we have a role to play today in what's happening in the world as the church of God. The Western church and especially the American church made the gospel about individualism. We used the buzz phrase, personal relationship with God, which is true. But in so doing, we reinforce the idea that your walk with Jesus is a private venture. We crochet, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope and a future on throw pillows, not realizing that that was a word given to a people not an individual. That's why we need a Texas Bible translation. It would say, I know the plans I have for y'all. I'll see if I can make that come to pass. Can I get an amen, y'all? If we see the church detached from the problems of the world, then when confronted with the insurmountable problems in humanity. We can just shrug it off. We can act like someone trying to get out of jury duty. Does anyone have a reason to be excused from this jury? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, my world is not this home. I'm just a passing through. I'd like to be excused. Author Erna Kim Hackett says, in this detached perspective, All Scripture has been reduced to individual interactions between God and a person, even when they're actually between God and a community, or Jesus and a group of people. As a result, white theology defines racism as hateful thoughts and deeds by an individual but cannot comprehend communal, systemic, or institutionalized sin. Because it has erased all examples of that framework from scripture. So, if I subscribe to that worldview, then as long as I'm not killing black people, or spitting on them, or denying them a home loan, or passing over them in a job interview, or calling them ugly names, I'm good. I wasn't a slave owner, I wasn't a segregationist, I was never part of a lynch mob. When I give an account to the Lord on that great day, I can confidently say I was not a racist. I can confidently say I didn't do those things. But what have I done to undo those things? Is that my responsibility? Am I complicit? Hackett goes on to say that white Christians see America as Israel, God's chosen people with a blessed destiny. And not, un, and not like Egypt who enslaved Israel for 400 years and built their glorious empire on the backs of those they oppressed. When we only see how things affect us as individuals, we're blind to our own villainy. Maybe you've experienced it where someone's come up to you and told you how badly you hurt them. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? And then when they explain something that you said or something that you did, you recognize Oh, I do see, that did hurt you. It was not my heart. That was not my intent. But it, I did it just the same. And it gives us an opportunity to make it right. So we're being presented right now in a lot of ways with an opportunity to make it right. If we fail to see things correctly, we will fail to respond correctly. If we fail to recognize how others experience us, the problem continues. Danny Silk talks about uh, the definition of humility as an awareness of how other people are experiencing you, an awareness of your effect on others. Colleen talked about humility last week. That's a strong. That's a strong value that we need to be walking in. Revelation 2. I'm sorry, 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I read this verse the other day when I was preparing for this sermon and studying and like never before, it hit me in such a glorious envisioning of this. Imagine when God steps down physically, to walk and to live and to dwell among us on that great day. Imagine what that's going to be like when the tears are gone and we don't have this enemy of death still hounding us and chasing us all of our lives. When there's no more fear, no more crying, no more pain anywhere. Lord, let that day hasten. If we do see the church that has been called to an active participation in the work of reconciling humanity to God then what is our role in dispelling the evil of racism? All right, slow down. Can we call it racism? The things that we've seen on the news over the past month or, or longer, but the things that have captivated our interest in this very um, interesting and intense time of human history Some people said it was a logical leap to make this about race. And I understand. We don't know if racism was what motivated the Minneapolis police officer to kneel on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. We most likely can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. The officer wasn't wearing a Klan hood. He wasn't shouting racial slurs at George. What is plain, however, to all who saw the video is that to the police officer who knelt on George's neck and to the other three officers who did not stop the murderous act despite pleas for mercy, George Floyd's life did not matter. Black people saw that video and still had fresh in their minds the white vigilantes who shot Ahmaud Arbery to death They had in their minds the group of police officers who illegally busted into Breonna Taylor's home while she slept and shot her to death in a firefight with her boyfriend. They had in their minds Trayvon Martin, and Tamir Rice, and Freddie Gray, and Michael Brown, and Eric Garner, and Philando Castile, and Alton Sterling, and Terence Crutcher and a Tatiana Jefferson, and Stefan Clark, and Botham Jean, and a Kai Gurley, all these in just the last eight years. Black lives that did not seem to matter. Now, I have to interject and tell you, I'm not anti-law enforcement. I am for people. I believe our governmental and social systems were designed to serve people, and any system that doesn't serve the people, especially systems that appear to oppress people, must be reformed. To say so does not dishonor those in the system who are trying to do their jobs with justice and integrity. I have several dear friends who are in law enforcement. We have them in our congregation. And I honor the hearts that they have because they are hearts of compassion, hearts from hearts from God, that they want to show well-being, they want to show compassion, they want to show charity to the fullest extent that they can as they do these jobs. So, a sweeping condemnation of cops is as reckless and irresponsible as a sweeping condemnation of protesters of blacks of other races, of other parties, of other political representations. Reckless and irresponsible to do that. I'm not anti-church or anti-clergy either, but a lot of harm and abuse has happened to people at the hands of clergy. I don't think that that makes all clergy evil, but just as we have an obligation to speak out against abuses in the church, we as the body of Christ have an obligation to speak out against all other systemic abuses. We have an obligation to oppose injustice of all forms. Now my appeal today, as I said, is to the body of Christ, and especially to my white brothers and sisters. You've no doubt already heard some things that are hard, and you've sensed or even heard accusations and insults leveled at you. My call is for the body of Christ to endure insult. Bear up under it. Don't repay evil for evil. Be teachable. Don't accept a label that isn't true, but learn to listen. Respond in love. White Americans live in a system that far and away favors and benefits us. We as a demographic have not historically suffered. We have not been enslaved. We have not been whipped. We've not been lynched. We have not had our necks knelt on. By the power of the spirit, we can endure this discomfort in order to end the hardship of black Americans and other marginalized peoples, even if it takes as long to correct the injustices as it did to commit them. some would still ask, what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? What does this have to do with the work of the gospel? I believe this has everything to do with the kingdom of God. All right. I'll take a break. This has everything to do with the kingdom of God. I believe that in this struggle, we can embody what Jesus was anointed to do. Remember him reading the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue? Bind the brokenhearted, proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, open the eyes of the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It is my belief that the only hope this world has of being made whole is by the body of Christ living out the self-giving, self-sacrificing, love of Jesus. It is my belief that the one seated on the throne in Revelation 21 who said, Behold, I'm making all things new, has commissioned us to embody that work, to co-labor with him. Now, a little personal backstory: I am an empathetic person, and I know that there are people on different scales, on, uh, different, different spots on the empathy spectrum. Okay, I make, I'm fully aware of that and I make allowances for that and I understand that when I feel something really deeply and personally and emotionally, other people aren't even recognizing it or registering it. Here's a little insight into my empathy. When I was, I'd say five or six years old, I was sitting on the steps, the front steps of my house in Austin, Texas, Round Rock. And as I sat there, you know, this is, way before the age of um, occupying yourself with devices. So I just sat there. <laughs> As I sat there and I looked down, I saw an ant crawling across the sidewalk in front of me carrying this crumb that was twice the size of, of the ant. And I stepped on it. I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it. I'm ashamed of it. But I stepped on it. And then this crushing agony and guilt just washed over me. And I imagined that it's Friday. It's Friday. This, that's daddy-aunt taking food home to the family. It's movie night. It's movie and crumb night. And they were going to have a grand time. And I killed that thing without mercy. And I just, I'm telling you, I wept. I... <laughs> I wept. <laughs> and my mom ran out. What's wrong? What's wrong? What happened? I'm like an ant, an ant, an ant bit you? No. And then I explained to her what was going on, and I don't remember her response exactly, but I know she uh, was was both in admiration of me and a little a little worried about me. <laughs> That's what I recall. So yes. I understand that my empathy meter might be pegging out a little harder than than some of y'all, and and that's fine. When I was eight or nine years old, we lived in a, a mobile home. I lived in, in a trailer park for most of my childhood, growing up till about age thirteen. But in, uh, in my, neighbor, in my uh, mobile home park, in the house right next to us was a black family and they had twin boys that were my age, roughly my age. And I remember being interested in them and, and somewhat fascinated by them because these were among some of the first uh, black people I'd had relationship with. And we'd hang out and we'd talk and we'd play and the, they were twins and one of them was blind and he was hilarious. And he would do Stevie Wonder impersonations and all kinds of stuff all the time. And, uh, and his other brother was like quiet. He would, he would laugh at his brother, but he was just kind of the, he was, he was the one who made sure he kept an eye on, on his brother. And that was my, that was the imprint impression uh, that I had with, with blacks, with black people. I had friends in school, I was in the marching band in seventh grade, and uh, I played French horn, and right across the, the aisle from me were the baritones and the tubas, and uh, there's a, a black friend that played baritone, the baritone and then a, a, another black friend that played tuba, and we would kind of cut up during class. I mean, we were responsible, but you know, kids, kids as well. But I'll tell you this, also in seventh grade, I was living in Midland, Texas at the time, uh, I was in gym class, and I was playing with a basketball. And a Latino boy named Cruz came by, and he snatched the ball out of my hand. And I just I just thought, that's not okay. And I was a runt. You've heard me talk about how small I was. I was, I was tiny. But I'm like, uh-uh. So I went back, and I snatched the ball away from Cruz, and I kind of shouldered him as I did it. And just like that, Pow! I was on the floor after a punch to the head and that was the end of that and I let Cruz have the basketball (laughs) (laughs) And, and I started going okay those people are dangerous watch out for them That was further enforced, reinforced on the bus that I rode when two uh, Latina students got in a fight on our bus. Uh, These were high school students. Remember, I was the seventh grader. And one of them, with her fingernails, scratched the cheek of the other and left really deep, bloody wounds and tore out one of her earrings. So I was sitting on the bus watching... The bus driver escorted these these kids off, these these girls off, and just seeing the blood from that fight, and I was that further reinforced. Wow, this is these are brutal, dangerous people. Praise God! When I was in the Air Force, I had for about a year, maybe a little bit longer than that. I had a a Latino roommate named Dave Zavala. He was from El Paso, Texas, and uh, we were roommates in San Antonio. And he turned out to be a dear friend and a brother and someone uh, that I was able to genuinely connect with and someone that we could work through some disagreements that we had and come to a place of, of seeing each other and understanding each other and not treating each other with some of the stereotypes that we'd been raised with. We have all had experiences of racism, both as those perpetuating it, sorry, perpetrating it, and as those suffering from it. We're now faced with a national reckoning, even a global one. We're in what I believe to be a God ordained crossroads in world history. Ricky said a couple of weeks ago, you guys realize this is a setup, right? In a time of pandemic where Humanity is as still as it's perhaps ever been. The murder of George Floyd has erupted in our in our collective psyche, and the outcry is not being raised in our nation alone. We have long heard the cries of black Americans telling us things aren't right. They have told us of injustice in policing, in employment, in education, in health care, in banking in living conditions, in income, in incarceration. To this point, they've been largely unheard. We haven't believed them. Our black brothers and sisters have been telling us, as George Floyd did, what hurts. They've been telling us they can't breathe. And yet our indifference kneels on their necks. Our self-interest kneels on their necks. Our partisanship kneels on their necks. Our disbelief kneels on their necks. Our silence kneels on their necks. Whites built their empires on the backs of enslaved blacks, farming land that whites had acquired by wiping out or relocating indigenous peoples. When the reckoning for slavery came, black Americans were emancipated but left instantly jobless and homeless. When a smallpox epidemic came, black populations were decimated, refused care in white hospitals. Federal help came in the form of a corps of black doctors, 100 doctors, to attend to the needs of 4 million black Americans. When the South lost their labor force after the Civil War, they incarcerated many newly freed black Americans with farcical and petty laws and put them right back into indentured servitude. When black Americans migrated north in large, and yes, alarming numbers, Biases and stereotypes followed them. These people are lazy. These people are dangerous. These people are ignorant. These people are criminals. Law enforcement systems were implemented to control black Americans and quell the discomfort of whites. When black Americans worked their way to home ownership, they were met with white neighborhood covenants that forbade black residents. They were segregated into their own neighborhoods where the low property values meant their property taxes could only fund inferior schools and inferior health care options. When black Americans made strides and got a taste of the American dream, they were met with murderous cruelty, as in the case of the Greenwood District of Tulsa, where a prosperous black neighborhood and business district known as Black Wall Street was literally bombed and torched by mobs of whites who killed anywhere from 300 to 3,000 black Americans 99 years ago. One black woman's account was her choice was to stay inside her burning house and perish or flee to the streets and be shot. In the 50s, the Rondo neighborhood of Minneapolis-St. Paul was the center of a thriving black community. It was systematically demolished over a period of 12 years to allow for the construction of Interstate 94, displacing over 500 families along with business and community locations. Jim Crow laws and racial segregation reinforced the notion of white supremacy. Voter rights and civil rights were fought for and won at the cost of their champions, Dr. Martin Luther King and Medgar Evers among them being being gunned down. In America of the 70s and 80s, the war on crime followed by the war on drugs resulted in mass incarceration of a disproportionate amount of black men, further cementing the stigma that black men are predisposed to criminality. Only a closer look at policies and practices will reveal discrepancies and unjust practices like possession of one gram of crack cocaine which is a drug commonly used by black poor black americans carried the same penalty as possession of 100 grams of powder cocaine a drug more commonly used by affluent white americans tactics like stop and frisk allowed police to accost people at will with young black men disproportionately targeted Minimum mandatory sentencing and the three strikes policies led to a dramatic spike in incarcerations, leading to the staggering statistic that America, while only making up 5% of the world's population, makes up 25% of the world's prisoners. To this day, the disparities of inequality abound. A 2018 study found that the average median household income of white Americans was $71,000, while the average median household income of black Americans was $41,000. A 2016 national study found that white males with only a high school diploma live longer than black males with a bachelor's degree. A 2020 CDC study reported that black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women, that number jumping to 12 times more likely in New York City. One in 23 white males born today will serve prison time in their lifetime, while one in four black males will. What is going on? Do black Americans have all the bad luck? Are they a cursed people? Are they sickly? Are they criminals by nature? Are they bad employees? Are they inferior? Are they not created equal? The question I'm most baffled by is, why can't we be bothered to find answers? These are incredible questions. Why can't we be bothered to find answers? Why can't we be bothered to address these social and systemic failures? I'll tell you this, part of the answer, and I get it, and I relate to this, is that we in the majority culture don't know about these problems. It's not our experience, but is it not our problem? All right, be honest. Now, how many of you just heard, heard learned about what Juneteenth is this this week, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's been around for a couple hundred years, well, 150 years, and, and, and we're just now learning about it. Let me just throw this out there. All this talk about coronavirus and how we're supposed to handle the pandemic, you guys recognize that you keep hearing this, this concern that we may be asymptomatic, and spreading the disease anyway. I mean, it's if you can spot the people that are coughing and hacking and wheezing, and stay away from them, that's all good and well. But the people who don't have symptoms and are still spreading the disease, that's more dangerous. Could it be the same with racism? Uh, we can spot the uh, uh, the the clans members, okay. We can, we can spot the guys that are saying the racial slurs and the obvious bigoted behavior, but can we spot the people who reinforce the stereotypes or reinforce the injustice? Are we those people? Are we asymptomatic? Let's get tested. <laughs> Figure it out, see if you are. Listen, ask questions. So what do we do? Church, what do we do? Let's look to Jesus. Matthew 123 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. It's always been one of my favorite names of Jesus. It's what Philippians 2 is about. Jesus laying down his rights as God to become one of us, to relate and to empathize and to share our sorrow and to bear our grief. Notice some of the people that he interacted with. The leper who was deemed untouchable. As I mentioned these, would you just picture them in your mind? What does that look, what what must have that looked like? What must that have looked like? And as you're picturing it, let me just challenge you. I was going to pop up a slide of the Jesus that I always visualized when I grew up, uh, the British actor, Robert Powell. So far off base. Jesus was a brown man, okay? And I, I just want to throw this in on the side. Please don't let Jesus be your only friend of, that's a person of color, okay? <laughs> but Jesus was a brown man. Imagine what it was like when he encountered the leper who was untouchable. Picture that. Picture the Samaritan woman looking for true love, the tax collector seeking Jesus from a distance, the child who represented the way to the kingdom, the adulterous woman facing the death penalty the Roman centurion who needed a miracle, the religious leader in the garden at night, the rich young ruler who wanted eternal life, the thief on the cross who wanted to be remembered. How did Jesus respond to these? He breached protocol and violated social norms. He risked his reputation. He asked questions and he listened He was not swayed by outward appearances, whether rich or poor, righteous or sinful, powerful or destitute. He went above and beyond the requested response. He touched the leper. Of all the ways that Jesus could have healed the leper, of all the ways he displayed healing power throughout the the Gospels, he touched the leper. He could have just spoken, but he didn't. He went above and beyond. He did not bow up at false accusations, and he even died because of them. He sacrificed his life that all may live. What keeps us from doing the same? I believe we do have some obstacles as the American church in embodying Emmanuel. One is that we, don't, we, we deny the problem, okay? We don't recognize the problem as a problem, or we don't like problems, or we don't like the effort or expense required to address the problem, or we fear if we admit there is a problem, they'll come after us with more problems. Okay, here I, I can relate this to my how I feel about car repair. When I hear a scary noise coming under my, from under my hood, that that puts the fear of God in me, and it terrifies me, and it makes me go. Uh, it's probably just a cat that got stuck in there. (laughs) And then I'll just keep driving until smoke or flames or other things emerge from under the hood. Another problem we have in uh, an obstacle to embodying Emmanuel is that we don't seek to listen or discern. We don't make the effort to hear the complaints, even as more voices join in unison saying something is wrong. I think that's our greatest failure. You can dismiss facts, uh, stats, you can debunk reports. People can send you an article and you go, yeah, but look at that news source. They lean this way or they lean that way. When our own brothers and sisters are telling us there's a problem and we ignore them, that's on us. And that's a failure of brotherhood. We've allowed the seed of the gospel to be choked out by the weeds of nationalism and materialism. We want our treasure here and now. We want to protect and maintain our standard of living. We value our constitution as much as the word of God. We deify the politicians who enable our way of life. The religion of our day is self-worship. Our wants, our needs, our interests are paramount. We accuse the world of that and don't see that we're guilty of it too. Another obstacle is the partisan spirit. It has destroyed our credibility as a church. The tug of war, imagine two sides tugging on the, on the rope and in the, in the middle hangs the fate of a nation is what we say. But really it's the fate of our worldview or possibly just the fate of our self-interest. We cannot commend agree with or cooperate with those of a different party because to do so is to let go of the rope and give them an advantage, even if they're right. Because of that, we've locked ourselves into defending people and principles and even outright falsehoods that our conscience objects to. We'll sell our witness to get someone in office who represents our interests, and the loss of our credibility is a high price to pay. Another obstacle is that we fear how we'll be perceived. People may mistake us for being misguided or that we're progressive ideologues. They may think that we're partnering with a spirit of hate, which, of course, we should not do. They may think that we're sowing division as though the sin of division is more destructive than the sin dividing us. In 1 and 2 Kings, we read about the high places in Israel, which were places the Canaanites worshipped gods, notably Molech. Molech worship involved sacrificing children in order for the worshiper to gain blessing. Israel's kings, with very few exceptions, would not tear those high places down. Some even tried to repurpose them as the temple was, I'm sorry, repurposed them as places to worship God, though the intent and establishment of the temple was to be the sole place of worship for Israel. We have high places in our country. We have sacrificed others for our own gain and prosperity. And I'm not just talking about abortion here. Abortion is fruit of the problem, not the root of the problem. Abortion is a byproduct of our original sin. Our original sin is dehumanizing others. Our original sin could be called white supremacy. Our fathers believed that they were endowed with superiority, our forefathers. They believed that God favored the white man and blessed him with the intellect and the ingenuity and the resources to subjugate the inferior races. White supremacy justified our well-documented atrocities and mistreatment of indigenous peoples. It justified our enslavement of blacks. It justified our oppression of those we deemed inferior through legislation and law enforcement. Now I've offended my wife and she's... Left the church, just kidding she's just kidding now listen listen to this. This is sobering. Jesus says, "'When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, "'it passes through the waterless places, "'seeking rest, but finds none. "'Then it says, "'I will return to my house from which I came. "'And when it comes, "'it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. "'Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, "'and they enter and dwell there. "'And the last state of that person "'is worse than the first. "'So also will it be with this evil generation.'" Some say we cast out the spirit of white supremacy with the abolition of slavery. I'm telling you this, if we did, it came back with more insidious spirits, harder to see, harder to cast out. This isn't a problem an earthly government can solve. Clearly there's been historic government complicity. This is a matter of spiritual warfare. This stronghold can only come down with the weapons of the Spirit. Wherever they exist in the world, they must be torn down. Wherever these high places exist in the church, they must be torn down. Don't be deceived into thinking that the most we can do to address problems is to vote, as though that's the extent of our efforts for social justice. That should be on the bottom of our option list. We are the temple of the living God. We have the power and resources of heaven within us. The fullness of God dwells within us. We have the mind of Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So what do we do? We acknowledge the problem personally and corporately. We ask God to reveal to us how we have failed to represent his heart to people and then make it right with whoever God reveals. Now listen. Listen. I'm not telling you to confess sins that you didn't commit, but ask the Lord to search your heart and reveal where, you've, where you have contributed to the pain of others instead of alleviated it. Repent. Turn away from that behavior. Turn away from self-interest. Ask God to help you love your neighbor as yourself, to treat others as better than yourself. That is not an American ideal, to treat others as better than yourself. The American ideal is to look out for number one. The American ideal is to put on your oxygen mask first and then, no, I'm just kidding. That's a, that's a separate thing. There's probably sense in that. Listen and empathize. Don't rush to justify yourself. Don't make this about you. Tear down your idols and idolatrous places of worship. I'm preaching to myself here. Stop revering the talking heads who feed your anger and hatred of others. Turn off the news sources, websites, and podcasts that make you look at others without mercy. Stop perpetuating ignorance and hateful stereotypes. With love in your heart, confront those that you love when they perpetuate ignorance and hateful stereotypes. Do it with love. Make friends with people who don't look like you, live like you, or vote like you. Not as token friends, as actual friends. Ask them about their experiences. Share a meal with them. Check in on them whenever the Lord puts them on your heart. And I heard this recently, and this really resonates with me. Make a personal reparations plan. We talk about reparations being systems where wrongs that have been committed are made right. Usually it's a financial thing. uh, A payment a settlement, a lawsuit, something like that, those are considered reparations. But each of us can consider a personal reparations plan. What can you do to ease the suffering of others? How can you sacrifice from your abundance to bless those who lack? How can you use the resources and giftings you have to address the problems of those around you who are hurting and hopeless? Ask God how he wants to use you in the healing of the nations. For my part, I'm taking a long, hard look at my life and my motivations. I'm taking a long, hard look at what following Jesus looks like, what living out my ministry calling looks like. I'm counting the cost. Let's all do that. In closing, I wanna say this, and I'm, I've invited my friend Dee Brown to, uh, to share a song. I've, I've asked him to come and share a song that he wrote that is a lament and it's a heavy lament, but at the end of that, we're gonna take communion together. And so we're gonna have the elements. If you haven't gotten elements, Steve, do we have those handy? Actually, probably Dee and I need some too. If you haven't gotten the elements, Steve's gonna be coming around with some if you haven't gotten them yet. Let me say this, the pandemic has prepared us for this crisis that we're in this awareness and revelation we have of racial inequality and injustice. The the pandemic has taught us endurance. We have learned how to sacrifice for the benefit of others. And we have learned how to use creativity and ingenuity to overcome great difficulties. The pandemic has tested the strength of the church. The revolution, sorry, the revelation of continued racial inequality will test the character of the church. May we be found worthy of our calling. What does Christ in you want to do in this moment? How does the head of the body want the body to act? Has he told you in his word what to do? Thanks, Ryan. Is he instructing us through his spirit? How does God with us Wished to reveal himself to the world in this crucial time in history. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. forever and ever.
1: Black man, black man, in and out of trouble. Just behind your eyes, I see what lies beneath the rubble. Rain or shine, you rise, I hear the cries of generations wishing time would somehow start again and wash away this struggle. Life to recompense for things your daddy did funny they ignore your years and try to call you boy To that sentence fall now you're a man your latter years destroyed from the start they break your heart tell you your history starts with chains the patriarch departs we're at his heart still waiting on the chains look at the charts teachers say you smart your life won't go the same things fall apart and ain't it such a shame that you're the one to blame i can't get over how his story ended just walking home my brother trayvon had his life upended was just a kid in different skin he gets his rights defended but now the killer's still at large and won't be apprehended and then i see my nephew james he looks me in my eyes he's only 17 but the same as if he's 25 his life to me is worth whatever i could sacrifice i'd risk my own to save the tears his mom and mine would truly cry but still to some if he got slaughtered in the streets alone the blame belonging to the shooter somehow he went on Guess he should've known not to be 16, black and looking grown, walking home with headphones on, do rag showing, pants too long, talking on the phone. But I know it's rare to catch a black man cry. I know it's hard to see a black man, black man. I know it's hard to watch a black man cry, black man cry. Don't hold your breath to see that black man's cry. It's much too hard to let the tears fall from his eyes used to be hard to make a black man cry, but here we are. Now there's a fire in the streets, guns for hire and police, brick and mortar burning down to muck and mire under feet. You sow and then you reap, but if your retribution ain't discreet, you could wind up just another body on a concrete. Cold street, bittersweet, no rest for the weary. I ain't really lost my faith, but my outlook is dreary. Feeling like I'll take a stand, but subconscious is leery. Need the truth to find the answers, but I can't trust Siri. I need a break from stressing and microaggressions. I get mad, I'm confessing. But I need to get my rest and try to wake up feeling happy And go smile for the people, making sure they feeling comfy And tomorrow little sequel I think about our girls, so innocent and sweet But it can fade when they gotta learn to navigate the streets All this pressure to be perfect and to fit into a culture that's full of vultures Trying to stay off the pole or have you seen me posters Must find a way but often scolded by the likes of Tommy Lauren and Ann Coulter How she ever supposed to make it over? She gotta choose to lash out and speak vulgar or push it down until it causes a ulcer. She can feel the cold world getting colder, but the heat's still on. What you thought it was gone? You thought a black press meant that racism was dead. Every time I see a black girl body slammed to the ground, it's my daughter I see grown men tossing around. Then you see a black man cry. I know it's hard to watch a black man, black man. I know it's hard to see a black man cry black man cry it seems to be hard to make a black man cry let's see the tears fall from his eyes it seems to be hard to make a black man cry here we are
0: Communion together as family. The elements that brought healing, the stripes that healed us, the body broken for us, the blood shed to initiate a new covenant, a new way to approach God, a new way to be human, a new way to live a new creation life. Said, this is my body that's broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's no remission. But the blood of Jesus, the very blood of God himself, was shed for us. Lord, we give you thanks. We drink in remembrance of you. Would you stand and just... Express your adoration, your gratefulness to the Lord. Call on Him, ask Him. Help us walk through this, Lord. Not only walk through this, help us tear down strongholds. Let's worship the Lord together. Brother D is gonna lead us in a song. By
2: stripes, we are here.
0: Lord for your victory Lord we don't have to overcome the world's problems with our own strength with our own ability with the weapons of the world that are utterly ineffective but Lord you've given us the weapons of the spirit mighty for the pulling down of strongholds and we go forth with the love of Jesus we go forth in empathy. Lord, may we heal as the body of Christ. May we have reconciliation as the body of Christ, where we haven't heard our black brothers and sisters, where we haven't heard other brothers and sisters that are people of color, where we have been, we've made assumptions and not recognized the harm and the hurt that we're causing. May we make that right. Lord, I truly believe that We are primed for a revival. And I think a church's response to what's happening right now, Lord, could usher it in. That we be agents of the healing power of Jesus, the healing love of Jesus, the unifying power of Jesus. In your great and glorious name we pray. Everyone said, amen. God bless you, church.